Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Hi there, I'm Georgie Ainsley and every week I talk to someone who is a performance person. They could be an athlete from the world of entertainment, business or politics. They could even be an astronaut. The key link is of course that they all know how to perform at the top level and they can teach us all a thing or two about how to do that in our own lives at whatever it is that we do. Performance People is available wherever you get your podcasts or of course you can watch us on YouTube where you can also subscribe and please do. This week, I'm speaking to Tim Spector, OBE, who's an award-winning scientist and author with over a thousand original articles published in some of the world's top scientific journals, placing him in the top 1% of most cited scientists on the planet. His book, The Diet Myth, raised the importance of the gut microbiome for human health for a wide non-scientific audience. It became an international bestseller and remains a brilliant insight to the unique way each of us interacts with food through our microbes. He's studied extensively the scientific evidence on what we eat, how we eat and why, so we can use that knowledge to improve our own personal nutrition. The old paradigm of food was just about calories and fats and sugars, nothing else mattered. As long as you got your protein, you're fine, don't care about anything else. Turns out that's completely wrong. Well, the epidemiology modeling suggests we could reduce disease by 70 or 80% wow. if we switched from, from our current uh, ultra-processed food diets to a optimal healthy diet. A new way of looking at medicine, which is with this preventive mindset um, and realizing that exercise and diet really are really important treatments that should be part of the, the whole health system and currently are not. So Tim, where do we start with the subject of food? Where do you, where do you tend to start with the subject of food when you're talking to people about how much it can play a significant role in your life and the various outcomes? I start by saying that your food choices are probably the most important things you can do for your health. And I don't think it's been fully appreciated before. We've just assumed that we all have a standard 
way of eating and there's a good way and a bad way and it's straightforward you just got to go on the internet and it's it's a dot all and just follow instructions on the packet and you'll be fine and really the last 10 years i've discovered nothing is further from the truth and that um if we made all better food choices we would be able to reduce most aging related disease by about 70 or 80 percent and we would have um uh 10 more years say of healthy living so it could be incredible benefits if we did manage to choose the right foods but i don't want to lose sight of the fact that eating good food is incredibly fun and it's a major social activity and a lot of the studies of say longevity and blue zones etc uh come up with the same finding that People who eat together in communities, in families, in large groups, spend time eating, are healthier and live better lives. So we've got to find this blend of choosing the right foods, but also eating in the right context in a way that isn't negative. It is very positive. How how catastrophic then can eating bad foods be for you? And and does that happen at a particular time in people's lives where it starts to have a really big impact? Um, does that happen when you're children or perhaps later? What you know, when do you start having to make really good food choices in order to help your longevity? I think at all ages, really, um, we haven't done the, the perfect study to know which is more crucial than others, it sort of depends on your goal. Clearly, if children are important, because whatever you do is going to last them a long time and get them into Mm. habits and things they may not be able to change. But equally, if you're in your 70s and you you want to maintain your sporting abilities and your, uh, your muscle mass, then choosing the right sort of foods to eat is also important to reduce cancers and things. So I don't think there's any good or bad time. And we've found there are a few specific areas like the female menopause, for example, that in that perimenopausal period, women dramatically change their response to foods mm. in a in a way that so they they can't eat the same food that they were eating just a few years before with the same way. So it will have metabolic consequences, make them gain weight, etc. So I think all all periods of life really are are important. I wouldn't want to um overemphasize one. And I think it and really you can make improvements at any age. I think that's the key. And, and just because you've you know may have had a been Bradley brought up and you can blame your parents for feeding you rubbish food all your life, I don't think it's an excuse not to give it a go now. No, quite. I mean, there's always a moment, isn't there, where you can reset the clock. On the subject of on the subject of the clock, how important is the circadian rhythm in all of this? So that you're eating the right foods at the right times of day for what your system requires in order to process it in the right way. I think it's really important. And the research in the last five years is is backing this up that uh, we've known for a long time that sleep is important. And sleep is all part of our clock mechanism, allowing our body to shut down and repair itself. And, you know, it's it's intricately linked to our health and our mental well-being. 
And having consistent patterns of sleep are also very important. And the same way our gut microbes also have a circadian rhythm. So um, this is the microbiome, the community of, of gut bugs we have in all of us. They have genes and they have clocks in them. So they also depend on periods of rest. So the modern way of living, which is to have about six meals a day, often finishing with cake and bickies in front of the telly, um, is really bad because it doesn't give your microbes that rest period that you that they need as well. So there's lots of studies now showing that you need to really rest your gut as as well as your brain. And so sleep and eating patterns need to be constrained into times of activity in your circadian rhythm. And the rest of the time, you really need to be relaxing to maximize your health. So I think these are all new insights and it's all starting to fit together. Uh, as we understand more about circadian clocks, we understand more about gut microbes, our genes, uh, and the way our, our body works and repairs itself. So unless you give your body time to repair itself, it can't do a good job on your immune system. It can't fight cancer. It can't fight aging, et cetera. And you won't get the optimum uh, gut microbes growing either. So can you put that into the context of what a, a, a good day would look like in terms of your diet, in terms of the clock, in terms of what you eat and when you eat it? Okay, so a good day in the context of, say, the UK, where, you know, because each country has different cultural norms about when they get up and when they eat, etc. But uh, in the UK, you would um, have eight hours perfect sleep. Uh, not everyone achieves that. And generally, if you can get seven hours, you're doing pretty well. There are some sleep gurus who claim that you need eight, but there's no hard evidence that's true. There is a genetic variation in how much sleep people need. And people that can exist on, you know, five or six are quite small, um, but they probably do exist. But in general, aim for aim for over seven hours and high quality sleep. That's also important. So you don't, um, um, you're not drinking heavily or taking other medications and things that upset that. So you might say go to bed at 11 o'clock and you'd be waking up at um, 6.30 or, or 7. And uh, what I, I do now is I, I fast. So I would have some black tea or black coffee at that time. Might do some exercise, and I probably wouldn't have my first meal until eleven o'clock. Really, and that would allow me fourteen hours um, or so overnight. So I'm not actually uh, ingesting anything that's going to excite my microbes. And it's really, really important to have periods of so activity and rest, and they're clearly separated. And we've done studies with um, with Zoe. Uh, on something called social jet lag and people who do vary in their activities um, say at weekends so consistently go to bed uh, a couple of hours later at the weekend and lie in mm. have worse metabolic health the next day so actually they um, feel more tired they uh, actually hungrier and their metabolism uh, gets out of kilter so although you know we all need to party occasionally and, and do these things if there is a way of 
keeping a consistent pattern throughout your week, then your body actually uh, really likes you for it. And I think this is what athletes also realize that it's it's generally good for their training to have these set times. And what we've also learned from Zoe is that everyone's different. So, you know, some people prefer to fast in the mornings. Some people prefer to fast in the evenings, not eat after 6 p.m. Uh, other people don't like to fast at all. And they actually like to eat small amounts throughout the day. So there is no absolute perfect um, day. Uh, I, I was giving you a sort of they call someone like myself, but it's just to illustrate the sort of things that are going through my mind about those, those eating uh, activity exercise periods in the in the day, and then of course we get on to you know what you eat and how that it affects your mood and um, energy levels, etc., which we now know um, are also extremely important and which we didn't think of before we the old paradigm of food was just about calories and fats and sugars nothing else mattered as long as you got your protein you're fine don't care about anything else turns out that's completely wrong and that um, you really want to uh, personalize in a way your sugar spikes your fat spikes uh, these have really big effects on your inflammation and your mood and your energy um, up to three or four hours later so I think it's all about people understanding their bodies more and getting in tune with it. And I don't think there's one size fits all, but these are the sort of things that people, you know, in the modern world with the, with the new technology we've got need to start thinking about. It's interesting that you mention mood, isn't it? Because it is one of those things that if you, you know, it's all very well not to get enough sleep, but the effect that that has on you the next day, the decisions you end up making, I always think exercise is a big part of this as well, because in your in your world, where do you see exercise slotting in? Is it something that you should be doing a little bit of every day in some form or another? Or is, I mean, how big a part of that is is the pit? How big a part of the picture is exercise as well as as well as the diet and the sleep piece? I think it's very important, but I think again it's personalized. Mm. And there's no doubt there is a genetic. We did twin studies 20 years ago showing that how much exercise people do has a genetic component. So it means that some people get a real buzz out of uh running at five in the morning and for other people it's the worst possible punishment you could give them <laughs> and they feel terrible and we mustn't all assume that everyone really does want to run at five o'clock on a cold january morning and there is these differences between people and other activities might be better for them um but we're yet to really personalize this we're starting to do this in zoe because we are seeing some people do better if they run uh, after eating and others if they run after fasting, for example. And there are some subtle differences between men and women in what the proportions are. So it's still early days and we're trying to sort that out. But I think we, in the future, we will be able to personalize a bit more advice about exercise. But at the moment, I think it's uh, important people really to be exercising their bodies as much as possible. Uh, just like you would any machine. Mm. And if you want the blood to be flowing properly, uh, you know, every now and again, you get your, your car out of the garage and you give it a run. If it does, 
if it's not doing anything for for several months, you know, it clogs up. And I think the same idea is keeping everything running, keeping your muscles going, um, and getting your heart rate up to maximum uh, every now and again is really important. I don't think anyone really knows the optimum times for each person at each age, but I mean, personally, you know, I like to do some exercise every day. I don't feel good if I don't, but I know other people that. Uh, seem to be quite happy on three times a week, and the sort of it's hard to know from the epidemiology <clears throat> what these averages really mean. Um, and I think government guidelines are probably a bit on the low side of saying, well, if you just walk briskly for three times a week, you know, for for half an hour, you're fine. Uh, I think that seems a bit on the low side. But again, you know, some people might be able to get away with that, and, and others not. But it's a it's more about listening to your own body and coming to your own conclusions, I feel, uh, realizing that everyone has different thresholds and mm-hmm. different people get different pleasures from sport than others. Do you snack? And how criminal is snacking? Well, snacking, we found uh, when we did our, our big snacking survey, uh, accounts for about 23% of all UK calories. So huge amounts wow. of uh, our energy comes from snacks, which we didn't used to do. And certainly when I was a kid, you know, snacks were a real rare treat. If you get your mum to give you a snack, it was you know, like you'd, you'd done something amazing. Um, <laughs> now, it's, now people don't send their kids to school unless they're loaded up with uh, little treats so they don't faint before lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and um, most, the vast majority of snacks are really bad for you because they're ultra processed. They're basically, you know, artificially made food-like substances, which is what I call ultra processed. And they may have low fat stickers on them, low calorie stickers, and increasingly high protein stickers on them. That's just a warning sign. This is extremely bad for you and uh, should be avoided. Um, there are, as I said, some people do really feel if you take away their snacks, they shake and they, you know, they they get a bit nervous. And I've got some colleagues like this that so we did some experiments with um, uh, Jonathan Wolf, but <clears throat> my co-founder at Zoe, and uh, he hates it if his snacks are taken away. But <laughs> swap those, you know, swap the horrible artificial ones with a bit of fruit, apple, pear, uh, some nuts. He's very happy. And so I think there are some healthy snacks. Uh, try not to have them late at night. Mm. Um, try to have them closer to your meals. So you're clustering your food uh, moments, if you like, together. You're not spreading out that eating period. And then I think you can get away with it. But, you know, we have far too many snacks, and that's really driven by marketing rather than by our hunger. And, you know, we should be eating our food around our meals. You know, if you find the need to snack or eat more at your main meal is is what I'd be saying. And all these sports snacks and things like this to repair your body, they're all nonsense. There's no need that no evidence you suddenly need a protein bar just after having gone to the gym. Uh, that's pure marketing. Yes. I mean, do you get frustrated with, with that? Because you must see it everywhere in every supermarket you walk into in every, you know, facility where they are 
they are selling the dream. Do you, do you get frustrated by the marketing spiel uh, when, you, when you know what's behind it? The, for the rest of us, we can, we can sort of, ignorance can be bliss up to a point. Yeah. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Well, I'm frustrated, but I also feel sorry for the general public that you know are being sold these complete duds. They're being sold these, you know, ed- industrially made food-like items with health halos on them. Um, you know, it's like selling menthol cigarettes is really good for you because uh, they're high in menthol, which is good for your breath or something. You know, it, it, we'll look back at this period of time and, and think, how do we let this happen? How do we let kids' food be uh, over 70% ultra-processed, you know, and which is four times worse than, you know, Mediterranean countries like Spain, Italy and France? You know, it's it's a horrendous state of affairs that we've let ourselves get into, um, because of no government control, because of the power of the food companies, because of the huge power of the advertising money they've got, because their products are so cheap to make, they can spend it all on advertising, which, you know, you can't if you're making nuts or apples. Uh, you've got no advertising budget. So that's what makes me angry, um, and it, and I nearly given up with the government but I, I do think you know talking in in social media and getting this people to read books and listen to the you know the, you know our nutrition so podcasts on zoe hopefully we'll get this ground movement going so that people do get angry and vote with their feet in supermarkets and start saying give me some real stuff and you know if someone's got a health claim on it 99 percent means it's absolute crap for you. And as soon as we start learning that, then maybe um, supermarkets will stop stocking it and manufacturers will change to giving us stuff that's healthier. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, what would you like to see happen? Because like you say, it's, it's, it's hard to educate people when you're up against the might of the marketing machines of these, of these big corporates as well who are driving, driving those sales. So, you know, in a perfect world, what would you like to see happen there? Uh, well, if I was minister in charge of everything, I would um, I would not allow health bogus health claims on foods high in this, low in that, high in that, you know, uh, heart healthy was sort of nonsense. If it was artificial food and uh, every ultra processed food would come with a 
a big sticker like cigarettes saying eating ultra processed food is bad for your gut health. It increases your appetite by 25% and increases your risk of obesity and many common diseases. And I wouldn't ban them because I think um, people want to have you know, tasty snacks and often they are very tasty. I'm not saying you know, they're not and they have it, but know what you're eating. That's why you know, I never have a problem really with things like Coca-Cola or Pepsi because they don't claim to, anymore to be good for you. They might have done 100 years ago, but you know, everyone knows, well, it's not healthy, is it? But the diet versions do claim to be healthy, and they're not, and uh, et cetera. So I'd change the labeling. I'd add a tax to them so that we could subsidize um, whole real foods and uh, make those available to everybody. Uh, I'd make sure that uh, school meals are free to everybody, and we increase the budget from 90p a meal uh, up to something more reasonable so they can afford real food. And uh, <clears throat> I would um, make nutrition education compulsory, and so everyone could cook at least six meals from scratch. So there are a few of my uh, my starting manifesto. But I've, vote I've got more vote for want. Tim. Vote for Tim. Um, in terms of in terms of disease, it's interesting. I I've been through a, ju just in a, in a small way with my mum who has cancer, and so she's on a constant management plan to make sure, obviously, she she's she's all right with that, but she is managing it as opposed to she can't cure it as such. Um, and one of the things that really got flagged to me throughout that process was the dangers of sugars, and and you know how problematic that can be. Um, in terms of disease in this country, I mean, how how much can we stave it off with a good diet? How how much can we actually affect real change? Well, the epidemiology modelling suggests we could reduce disease by seventy or eighty percent wow. if we switched from from our current uh, ultra processed food diets to a optimal healthy diet and. Uh, that's quite doable, and so it's the ultimate in prevention. Uh, the problem is, you know, we don't have a government or a health service that's geared up for prevention. Uh, we're just, you know, just putting sticking plaster over illnesses and treating cancers when they arise, rather than actually saying, okay, well, let's take a long-term plan and say, well, why does the UK suddenly have so many cancers? Why do we have so much obesity, so much diabetes, so much arthritis? So many, so many allergies. Um, you know, we need to take a preventive approach, and rather than spending a third of a whole NHS budget in the last three months of our lives, put that forward and just say, let's spread it out and make sure that um, you know the next generation are going to have much less of these diseases. So it, it does need a, a real total mind change, mindset change uh, to initiate this. And you know, you take cancer. Most oncologists, these are the cancer specialist doctors, are not trained in nutrition at all, uh, just like most doctors or GPs. So they're very rare to find anyone who knows what to advise people on. And increasingly, we're finding that actually diet does have a big effect uh, on cancer treatment, um, survival rates, how you your body interacts with the uh, drugs you might be on for cancer, for yeah. example. And we did, we did a huge, we did the biggest study across Europe looking at 
couple of hundred people with end-stage melanoma who were on immunotherapy drugs, which, um, and we found that the state of your gut microbes at the beginning of uh, when you went on the treatment were that the difference between being in the top group and the bottom group doubled your risk of survival. Uh, and that's all down to diet. Wow. And yet, I doubt I doubt anybody has that discussion with their doctor to say, before you go onto these treatments for cancer or whatever, you need to optimize your diet. You need to optimize your gut microbes because the gut microbes are the key to your immune system fighting the cancer. And instead, you get these sort of wacky things or don't, don't eat salami or... Um, I have some patients being told, don't eat yogurt, which is like the opposite. They should be uh, uh, told. Others get told to take antibiotics, the slightest chance of infection, which is the worst thing you can do for your gut microbes. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that we could be doing um, if we thought more about a, a new way of looking at medicine, which is with this preventive mindset um, and realizing that exercise and diet really are really important treatments that should be part of the, the whole health system and currently are not. It's all about being proactive, isn't it? As opposed to reactive with your, with your, with your health, with your own health and investing in your own health in that way. Um, in terms of the gut microbiome and microbes, can you just break that down for people that don't have any medical knowledge or aren't really aware of what it, what it is and how it can affect change. Can you just break down what the gut microbiome is and what these microbes are and how they can affect real change? Gut microbes, we have nearly 100 trillion of them. And they're everywhere from our mouth all the way down to our uh, anus. And most of them are in actually are the lower part of our colon. Uh, called the large intestine, and 99% are there. And you put them all together, it's a huge mass. It's a, it's about a couple of kilos, but weighs the same as our brain. And collectively, they've got 2 million genes, and they're like chemical factories. So they're converting the food that gets down there. This is things that are high in fiber, not your ultra-processed rubbish, but real food. Real plants get down there and they munch on that fiber. And in return, they produce whole thousands of different chemicals, everything from B vitamins to chemicals that can make you happy or sad and uh, chemicals that really tune, finely tune your immune system, your metabolism, your appetite, et cetera, et cetera. And you also interact with medicines like these anti-cancer drugs I was talking mm. about. So they're absolutely crucial. Um, for our uh, behaving well. And we've lost about half of them in the last 100 years as, as we've made lots of mistakes with our diet and lifestyle. So, it's, so there's this community of, of, of mini pharmacies, if you like, is the way I, I like to think about it. Another analogy is like a, a garden. So your microbes are, are, you know, you want as many different species as you can. You want to have a rich country, English country gardens with, you know, as many of them brightly colored plants, flowers, uh, borders. Everything looks lovely. The soil is fantastic. You're getting lots of aroma chemicals coming off. You're getting seeds and you're constantly putting new seeds on it. You're watering it. You're, you're fertilizing it. It's perfect. 
On the other hand, if you're in a really bad state, like most of us are in the UK, um, being fed ultra-processed foods with nasty chemicals, you've got, it's like a, a desolate brown, uh, brown site. It's like, you know, some industrial wasteland where the odd weed is there and really nothing survives very long and it's easy for one species to take hold, one particular weed to take over the whole place. And very few chemicals have been produced. So you want to be in that English country garden type and you don't want to be, you want to get out of that wasteland type. That's, that's the way I think people should think about it. And realize that they're in control of that garden by what you put in your mouth, um, the food you eat, how you eat it, when you sleep, when you exercise, all these things have an effect on how those microbes produce those great chemicals that keep you going. So it's 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 like we've discovered a whole new organ in our bodies. And I think once you once you can visualize that, it changes the way you think about food forever. And what sort of what sort of influences in people's everyday life can can really affect that change other than your diet choices? And is is it as simple as, um, you know, babies and being around babies and, and, and picking up their microbes and pets and picking up their microbes and exposing yourself to different scenarios and different things in different places? I mean, does that stuff help? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing that helps is food. Okay, so, and we can go into, you know, ways to improve that, but it's diversity of plants, this idea of you know, 30 plants a week, different colored plants, et cetera, um, fermented foods, those yeah. things will increase your gut microbes. But in terms of lifestyle, we know that people who live in the country have more diverse species than people who live in cities. So, when you do get a chance to go out, do go and hug some trees. Do go and uh, so that's hug, actually that actually makes a difference. Dog. So that stuff makes a genuine yes. difference. If I if I go out into the woods and I walk in, I walk in the woods most days. If with dogs, if I hug my dog and I hug a tree, that's that's actually going to do some good to me. I can't promise about the tree, but definitely <laughs> we know about the dogs. Um, okay, but uh, and. And also being in a big family group as well. We know that if you're in a big uh, family, you're going to be swapping microbes more. So the more you can have in a bed, the better. Um, <laughs> that all helps. Um, cats don't help much either, though. Uh, for some reason, they don't they share like the microbes with humans very much. No, they're very so independent stick to your creatures. Dog. <laughs> gardeners, there's some evidence that gardeners also have uh, healthier microbes than people who don't garden. So... I think there are getting outdoors as much as you can, getting a bit dirty, uh, being sociable. Uh, all these things um, are important, as well as avoiding antibiotics as much as you can, mm. avoiding sterilizing things too much, avoiding the Dettol and uh, antimicrobial sprays, um, all the things that we were taught to do in COVID. Yeah. Uh, we need to sort of unteach ourselves. Well, how do we how do we go about how do we go about 
doing that, Tim, because we were, like you say, it was drilled into us during this period in our lives for a good two years or so that absolutely the anti-back thing was the way forward, you know, wipe all the surfaces down. You know, I mean, I, I have memories of, of me, you know, spraying gel into my hands and then onto the kids and doing all of that and mask wearing. I mean, how detrimental is that in terms of um, upsetting this system that you've just been talking about? Well, it didn't work very well for COVID. So you could say it, it, it's not going to be that harmful for your gut microbes. But I think the mentality is wrong. So they have done studies, for example, of babies um, who spit their dummies. And they divided parents into those that immediately sterilized it and gave them a sterile one. And those that just took it off the floor and stuck it back in their, in their mouth. And there's some evidence that the mums who did that, um, their kids had less allergies, for wow. example, which means mm. a stronger, stronger immune system and you, you'd, you'd guess a stronger gut microbiome. So I think um, particularly early life, exposing kids to bugs, normal behaviour, dirt, uh, different foods, not being obsessed about uh, ingredients, making sure they wean on real foods and they're not just given artificial ultra-processed baby food and all these things are really important for introducing bugs into into our guts because we've got to remember we're born sterile and um, the first three or four years are probably the most crucial in in building a really good set of gut microbes so um, don't feel guilty about uh, scraping stuff off the floor (laughs) of which as a busy parent Uh, I do most days You're making me feel better for my terrible behaviour. Yeah, your your children will thank you for it one day. (laughs) So so I come to the bit where I want to ask you about a performance hack for everyday life for people. And I suppose we've just sort of touched on it briefly there. But if you could say to one, if you could say to people, this is one thing that every day you should do because it will give you ultimately in the end better performance, maybe not necessarily just for that one day, but looking at the bigger plan, the bigger picture, what, what would it be? Well, I mean, everything we're into, I'm into a more holistic picture. So, well, I mean, you could say one tip is to look after your gut health, you know? Okay. It's yet to my one hack is every day, look after your gut microbes and they'll look after you. And then that allows me the follow-up question as well. How do you do that, Tim? And I said, oh, well, glad you asked. Um, <laughs> eat, 30, eat 30 different plants a, day, a week. Have regular fermented foods. That's not just yogurt and uh, it's kefir, it's uh, kombucha, it's kimchi, it's miso. It's getting us back in our diets that we, we've forgotten about. It's it's raw milk cheeses. Um, just be adventurous with that because we now know that really helps your immune system really quite impressively. Eat the rainbow because that gives you defense chemicals, so colorful foods. Um, um, give your gut a rest every night at least 12 hours. If you can do more, that's great. And always try and look at what you're eating in order to reduce ultra-processed foods so you're not getting unwanted chemicals inside you 
which uh, serve no benefit other than to make companies rich. So I think those, they're my sort of five, five hacks, which is basically just each day think about your gut health. And if you do that, your gut will look after you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 